Hello everyone, just a quick note to say, please enjoy this special, mini, more historical episode. Normal programming will resume soon, I've got a massive, super funny episode to edit, and Django is coming. So with that, enjoy! A belch of wind swirled into the cafe as the red-faced man pushed his way through the door and out of the frosty December air. He glanced nervously at his pocket watch allowing the door to swing shut behind him with a noticeable clatter. The patrons didn't look up. This was Paris, after all. Cosmopolitan capital of Europe, and there was always something exciting to discuss. Drafts and noises went unnoticed amidst the gossip and scandal. The man searched the room, looking above the sea of coffee and cake for his destination. Spotting a bebuttoned steward, he blustered over to him. Apologies. Have I missed the show? The... Show, sir? The steward paused. Oh, the Lumiere's presentation. No, sir, the uh, <laughs> show has not yet begun. The man noted a distinct smirk in the steward's voice, if not on his precisely stoic face. Please, this way, sir. The man nodded and followed. The two skirted the room, circumventing the packed tables until they came to a nondescript wooden door hidden awkwardly by a still resplendent Christmas tree. Opening the door, the steward revealed a set of stone steps, juddering unevenly downwards. The man flashed his ticket, and then, at a nod from the steward, descended into the murky gloom. As he did so, the excited chatter of the cafe faded, replaced by a murmur of quiet anticipation from below. His final step took him from the staircase and into a small, dingy room, trying its best to be anything but... Softly glowing lamps dotted the walls, framed by lavish red curtains and Grecian pillars. There were even some ferns dotted about, adding a splash of green to the haughty canvas. In the centre of the room sat six rows of small chairs, populated sparingly by a handful of expectant spectators. A stark contrast to the bustling cafe above. But it was the front of the room that drew the man's attention. A small cloth screen, creaseless and pristine. And in front of this screen, what looked like two small wooden boxes mounted on a pommel horse. A rather strange, if unassuming, sight. But the man knew better. As he lowered himself into a seat, he caught sight of the men of the hour making their way to the front. Their suits black, their boots shining, their moustaches coiffured to perfection. Settling either side of the strange device like highly officious crows, they began flapping about it, tinkering until they were satisfied. Then, they turned to their expectant audience. The room went quiet as the men began to speak, whilst up above, the cafe continued on as normal, unaware that history was being written right beneath their feet. The now, somewhat less red-faced man fixed his eyes forwards, waiting. The show was about to begin. The scene I just described seems like any other screening from the early days of cinema. A single snapshot in a winding lineage. However, what happened on December 28th, 1895, beneath the Grand Café Paris, is actually much more significant. It would set the stage for the entire industry to follow. You see, the two besuited and mustachioed men, the aptly named Lumiere brothers, Lumiere being French for light, were fluttering around the foundations of a whole new art form, their cinematograph. But before we get to know the machine, we should get to know the men.
The brothers Lumiere were born two years apart, August in October 1862 and Louis in October 1864, to photographers Antoine and Jean Lumiere, and quickly found an interest in their parents' work. Sadly, by 1884, their father's factory, which made photographic plates, was on the brink of bankruptcy. Indeed, according to some sources, it was kept afloat only by the efforts of Louis and his younger sister working from morning till evening. Whether or not this tale of child labour is true, what we do know is that the situation was perilous. Something had to be done. Luckily for Antoine, his kids were about to invent, and then step into, the spotlight. The brothers started by automating their father's factory, improving efficiency and stabilising their finances. In fact, things went so well, Antoine was able to hire actual paid employees instead of just using his kids. Next came the invention of a new photographic plate, Etiquette Bleu, or the much less glamorous sounding Blue Label in English. The plate boasted an exposure time of just 1 60th of a second, and leaving aside the precise mechanisms of plate photography for another time when I've actually managed to understand it, this was pretty flash. Indeed, Blue Label was a massive success for the brothers, and they followed it with more and more patents. Perhaps the brothers just enjoyed the limelight, or perhaps they could tell that their ideas were moving somewhere? <laughs> In 1894, their father returned from Paris, and fresh from a presentation of Thomas Edison's kinetograph, he brought with him a challenge. You see, whilst the kinetograph was able to show moving images, which was a wonder for the time, viewers had to watch one at a time via a small peephole. Was it possible, Antoine wondered, to project a moving image for all to see? That was the question Auguste and Louis intended to answer by putting their mechanical skills to bear. For us, looking back, we can see that this question is rhetorical, but for them, it was the start of a significant endeavour. However, by 1895, their mission was completed. Their device was christened, and indeed patented, the kinematograph, from the Greek kinema, meaning movement, and graph, meaning to write. In this, the brothers veered dangerously close to Edison's kinetograph, a potentially risky business considering Edison's notoriously litigious nature. However, the Lumieres apparently avoided catching Edison's ire, although he did of course sue a number of other people over his kinetograph, because he was Thomas Edison. In fact, the name really was borrowed, or rather bought, although not from Edison. Fellow inventor Leon Bouly had created and patented his cinematograph device several years prior, but he fell on hard times, and so ultimately sold the name to the Lumieres. Maybe they, um, <laughs> bullied him into it. But what's in a name? What did the brother's device actually do differently? Well, as it happens, quite a lot. Whilst the kinetograph could only capture images and display them through its tiny little peephole, the cinematograph could project them for a large audience to see. So mission one accomplished. Beyond that though, there were other achievements. The images captured were sharper and because they were captured at a lower frame rate, it saved on film. The device was lighter and because it was powered by a hand crank, it was much more transportable than Edison's electrically powered beast. Plus, the cinematograph could actually print the film. If Edison's device was a flip phone, the Lumieres had skipped right to a Samsung Galaxy. One of the not explodey ones though, you know. 
Now that their work was functional, it was time to show it off. And for two buttoned-up Frenchmen, of course the natural choice for a groundbreaking demonstration was a small cafe basement. Before we move into the actual screening proper, it's probably important to give some more context around it. Although this technology, the cinematograph, kinematograph, whatever, was brand new, and so this would be the first cinema screening, as we would know one, it was not the first screening full stop. Why was this one different? Well, partly because of the differences in the methods used, the devices that had existed before were not as sophisticated or used different principles, and also partly because I've already written most of this podcast about the Lumieres and I didn't want to rewrite it all. I'll leave further explanation for another time, though I will take a minute now to touch on my absolute favourite example of another early screening. Uh, This comes from American inventor Robert Fulton. So in 1799, Fulton patented a system to mechanise a scrolling canvas using spools at either end. Audiences would flock to watch these huge landscape paintings, many, many metres long, be wound, and that gave the impression of movement. These would then be accompanied by narration about what was happening in the sea. You know, typical like old-time stuff, people eating fruit, swans attacking children, people dying of dysentery, you know. It's not Die Hard or Kill Bill, but these shows were hugely popular. In fact, John Banvard's near-life-size panorama showing a basically full trip along the Mississippi River was so popular that he used the profits from his various tours to build a huge mansion on Long Island, modelled directly after Windsor Castle. Apparently, he did not ask his neighbours, and his neighbours were not pleased. But you know who was pleased? The Lumiere's audience! Absolutely seamless transition there. Seamless. Remember to cut this bit out. But who was in this audience? Oh, you're on fire today. For this first demonstration, the Lumieres presumably wanted an easy ride, so invited a mixture of friends and family, although they did make some tickets available for the general public too. Thinking that perhaps this might be worth documenting, the brothers also invited various press outlets. Thinking this was just a fad and it'll never take off, and honestly, what's wrong with good old wax cylinders? Uh, No press showed up at all. Uh, Perhaps they were covering another story. All of them. I, for the record, tried to give them that benefit of the doubt, and I looked for anything else interesting that happened that week. Besides, you know, Christmas. Uh, There's nothing else. So, no excuse. They were just being snobby. Whatever the press's reasons, the results spoke for themselves. The screening was a massive hit, and the brothers sold over 2,500 tickets a day after that first outing. And judging by the size of the room, that's over 50 screenings a day. Now, how did they show so many films in one day? Did they show five films at once, projecting onto the walls and the ceiling and cram people in like a Parisian battery farm? No. Did they constantly move the room around the international dateline to double the length of the day? No, not that either. Uh, That would have been absolutely fantastic. In fact, that probably would have been a more notable invention, to be honest. It was actually because each film was only 50 seconds long. That, sadly, is the most boring of all possible worlds. But that was actually the standard for the time, with film length restricted by the length of film. the amazing thing about these films is that you can still watch all of them. Now, granted, they're no Transformers 5, Age of Extinction, you know, no masterpiece like that, but they're still incredible. Uh, To be able to watch footage shot 
over a hundred years ago, right from the start of film, to watch people living in a world that is so, so, so different to ours, but also it's sort of so close in many ways, and just people jostle about, move through their lives. It's a window into a past that's right on our doorstep, and it's something I find endlessly fascinating, really exciting. So you can have a watch yourselves, or maybe even recreate the screening with 2,500 of your closest friends, like a Downing Street work do. Here are the 10 films the brothers showed, and titles in English, because you don't want to hear my French accent any more than you have to. Number 1. Workers Leaving the Lumiere Factory. It is what it says on the canister, give or take a couple of horses. Number 2. The Gardener, or The Sprinkler Sprinkled. A boy steps on a gardener's hose. When the gardener looks at the nozzle to check it, the boy moves his foot. The spray of water drenches the gardener and knocks his hat off. Absolute comedy classic. The gardener then beats the boy. That's less good. Number three. The disembarkment of the Congress of Photographers in Lyon. Lots of photographers get off a train in the morning. Okay, it's not that cool, but they would then be shown that film later that same afternoon, which is pretty neat. Number four. Horse trick riders. A man is repeatedly thrown over a horse and slapped on the bum. Number five, fishing for goldfish. My absolute favourite. A baby André Lumière, who was August's daughter, dressed seemingly like a white bin bag, plays with goldfish in a vase whilst being supported by a beaming August. It is extremely sweet. Number six, the blacksmiths. Some blacksmiths doing their thing, and then, at the end, they genuinely get served wine, and they tell me this is French. Number seven, Baby's Breakfast. A starring return for Baby André Lumière, where she badly eats some porridge, accompanied by her mother and father for uh, moral support. Number eight, Jumping Onto the Blanket. This title is a lie. A man repeatedly fails to jump onto a blanket and gets slapped on the bum. It's like a bad sequel to the horse one, where they had to recast the horse. Number 9. Cordelier's Square in Lyon. This is footage of traffic for a street in Lyon. Good if you like horses, men in suit, and horses accompanied by men in suits. The sea, brackets, bathing in the sea. Four kids and their mum repeatedly jump off the smallest jetty in the world. Possibly what madness looks like. Now, although I enjoyed all of these little wonders, my all-time favourite one-minute silent film made before World War I, which is a hotly contested category, let me tell you, has to go to Thomas Edison. I'm sure he's gloating right now as he burns in hell. It's a recording from the 1900 exposition Universelle in Paris of a moving sidewalk, which is like a travelator in an airport, but it's slower, outside, made of wood, and not there anymore. Just like the other films, it's an interesting watch on its own, seeing men, women, children of this bygone age enjoying this weird novelty and, on occasion, strutting for the camera, although a lot of them definitely did not know what it was. Uh, in fact, there's actually a lovely moment, 50 seconds in, where a man does a little dance, then tips his bowler hat to the camera like some sort of budget Charlie Chaplin. But my favourite part comes around 1 minute 10 seconds in, and you can find this on YouTube, and I heartily recommend you look it up. Uh, at this point, a man emerges from the crowd, punches a child in the face, and then simply walks off screen.
And so there we have it. Soon, the brothers would start opening theatres to show their work, effectively creating the cinema. History was made. Cinema was suddenly a viable commercial enterprise, and a whole industry was born. Within 30 years, Hollywood would be in its golden age, with the likes of the Marx Brothers and Charlie Chaplin flying high. And obviously, it would keep getting bigger. Laurence Olivier, Alfred Hitchcock, Marilyn Monroe, Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg, Quentin Tarantino, Space Jam 2, A New Legacy, all owe something to that first screening, and to Lumiere's. And of course, the ever-innovative brothers were right there at the forefront, jollying cinema along. Oh wait, no, 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 they weren't. In fact, they said, the cinema is an invention without any future, and refused to sell their camera to anyone, thereby cutting themselves from the scene. When did they say this? 1895, the same year as the screening. I guess they weren't known for their optimism. So perhaps the Lumieres weren't the future of cinema, but they certainly helped plant the seeds. And what else do seeds need? But light. <laughs> 